Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Cloud-Based Mayhem. I have a few things of housekeeping before we get into this one with Philip Zellner, who just broke the record and then broke it again, actually, after we had our talk out in India with a couple of monster FAIs. So that's what this show is mostly about, but about Akron and a bunch of other things. But before we get to that, a couple of things housekeeping. First is the show with Russ Ogden and Nick Grease. The spring tune-up has received a ton of a lot of praise and a lot of thanks and a lot of gratitude from folks for that one. So if you haven't checked that out, make sure you do. There's tons of great information, especially as we dive into spring flying here where things tend to be a little rowdy and we tend to be a little bit rusty. So thanks again to those guys for so much good information. If you haven't heard it, check it out. The other one is I got a lot of feedback from people on the show with Nicolay who had the incident uh, in Chamonix and had to throw his reserve after breaking some A-lines and some people reached out that said that they had experienced, not on that wing, but had experienced various gear failures and some of them could have been really heinous, uh, especially Neil Michaelis uh, had the XR7, you know, that had the recall a little while back and also got kind of pin locked trying to throw his reserve and luckily that mostly worked out, but there it brought to my attention that there is sometimes not frequently thankfully still but there are uh, gear failures and we need to be certainly on top of recalls which do happen from time to time and also paying attention to our gear i mentioned in the show that one of the times i threw my reserve the handle just popped off the bag and i was amazed and when i sent it back the manufacturer was amazed and claimed that it wasn't their bag, it wasn't their handle, although it was their handle, but it wasn't the sewing job that they had done. So, And I had a, a listener ping me that said that's insane that I didn't notice that. And yeah, I guess it is. So just confirmation that we need to be checking our gear and, uh, and paying attention to things. Certainly lines are susceptible. I had a pretty wild incident a bunch of years ago on a wing that I'd put in the ocean quite a few times because we were doing a lot of towing with the boat and then flew in beer and had a weird parachutal incident where it was later determined that my wing was just so out of trim and because of all the salt water. So these are little things that can be big things. So there you go, check your gear. I think the takeaways from that one are still pretty on. The other important thing is the insurance space, which is something I talk about quite a bit because I think it's so important. As Miles, our editor says, not having insurance is like flying without a reserve, which I totally agree. That space has changed pretty radically as of late. Garmin, as you know, bought out Geos a couple years ago, and that's but Geos has still offered their insurance and their high-risk benefit, and they're basically very similar coverage of kind of MedJet, but all of that insurance now is gone. When you hit your SOS, it still notifies the IERCC. They will come do the search and rescue, but the insurance side of it is gone, except for the SOS. When you hit your SOS, you can still get the high-risk benefit, so it's called the same thing as it used to, but it's through Garmin. It's quite a bit more expensive, unfortunately. It's 299 a year, but there is an exclusion for paragliding and hang gliding if you hit your SOS and you're partaking in free flight. You could be up for a massive bill. So. 
make sure this often falls outside of your standard insurance <clears throat> because there's a search component of it and so and then many people you you now can if you have global rescue or another repatriation kind of service like that you all know i'm a big fan of global rescue they're fantastic and i'm constantly getting emails from people who have used them and have really good uh, feedback about that and it's it's all worked out so I, I think they're the best out there in terms of repatriation repatriation getting you home if you've had something happen you can put in the SOS notes that you have a global rescue membership and in theory the IERCC will notify global rescue but this is still a massive gray zone it depends on who you talk to at the IERCC it depends on who you talk to at Garmin so by far the safest bet is to still have that high risk benefit even though it's 299 a year that's pretty cheap insurance in case you have to use it the other thing is that when you press your sos on a spot they no longer fall under the ierCC they're having to i don't know i don't actually even understand i haven't looked into it closely enough but yet another reason to have an inreach but spot is also kind of in a gray area now if you hit that sos they're trying to use their own emergency services so i think that's a little risky right now there is a flow chart on the article on my website if you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com and just put in the search term insurance you'll see the article i've just updated everything there are these changes and more, and then there's a flow chart at the bottom of that that kind of steps you through if you're still confused, what you need, depending on what you're doing. There's also potentially a new insurance arm. One of the offerings from IMG, I have always recommended IMG Signature, but that hasn't covered competitions. They now have one that maybe does, and I don't have that in there yet because I'm still doing some research, but stay tuned for that. Philip Zellner is my guest today. He's a pilot from Austria. If you're an ex-contest junkie like I am, you have seen his name pop up again and again. He's constantly breaking records. Longtime acro pilot and tandem pilot. He flies tandems all summer at his business to roll air in Austria and then takes off for the winter and just chases it. And that's what he was doing when we had this chat. He had just broken the India FAI record, 234K. A monster out in beer and then two days later unfortunately after we'd already recorded the show he broke it again went even bigger at 255 so this is all about his flight and his experiences and his signature ground spiral tip drag and just chasing it he had a record i'm not sure it still stands because i think it got broken this season but out in valle and he has a lot of fun and goes for it pretty big and is was very interesting to speak with. So enjoy this chat with Philip Zellner, who just broke the FAI record in India, and check out those previous shows. And thanks for listening. Cheers. Philip, uh, it's nice to be speaking to you just about 48 hours after this monster flight you just did. Congratulations, man. That was uh that was that was wicked to see. 235 FAI, the new record in in beer for FAI, and what a route, man! Way out past Aramasala, and then way deep north of Manali. It looked like you were well above eighteen grand. It looks at a couple times that must have been just stunning. It, it seems like these big ones go down in the spring, but congratulations! Thank you very much. Yeah, it was very nice to fly this big three angle. Um, I mean, I, I did already last year, 
but uh, then Kubo come and he make uh, like 500 meters more and I know I come this year also and uh, say okay this will be my new project this year nice the, you uh, you know I was I was talking about this just the other night and uh, right after you'd done it with a, a good friend of mine who's been following you on social media for a long time and the first thing he wanted me to ask you is is this all you do? Just go around and chase big flights because you've been putting down a lot of these. You've got that signature wingtip drag at the end of your flight, and which obviously from your acro training, which we'll get into. But tell tell the audience a little bit about your life. What are you? What do you kind of? What are you doing these days to pay for all this? And and how? I mean, it seems like you're chasing it pretty hard. Yeah, it's like uh, more or less. I have a tandem company since five years now. And before I was also flying tandem. So when I was flying like um, 2009, I start. And then after two years, the teacher who told me, or who showed me flying, he was asking me if I wanna work for him. I make all the license and everything. And then I was working for him. Now I have my own company. So I work only in the summer and in the winter time, I take my time off. And and uh, the world kind of seems like your oyster. You put down a big one in in Valle. If you do, you kind of have things mapped out. And you know, in the summer when you're not doing tandems, are you are you deciding on the on the your travel plans for the winter? Or you just said you've been to beer every year for maybe ten years. Is that kind of just a normal stop? Yeah, this is like I like to fly bivac and. For the winter or for October, it's very nice time to be here. And now I have already lots of friends here that I hang out with and fly bivouac and enjoy the life here. So it's a good place to fly in October. It's so reliable. I've I've only been twice. It was a long time ago, 2009 and 2011. It's a special special place. The the, the colonels. And I was out there with Eddie and Jim and and John and and those guys. But it's a it's it's a very special place. Have there been any difficulties with the the last time I was there, there was a bunch of problems getting to launch and there was a lot of kind of bureaucratic stuff going on. Is that all resolved itself? Yeah, actually it's not a big problem anymore. I mean, uh, last year they had some tandem accidents and then they locked for two months the flying, but it was in the springtime. It was mm -hmm. actually when I did the record was this, uh, the 272 record was the second day when it was open to fly here in Beer. The the flat triangle that you did. Yeah, the flat triangle what I did. So you, you just did this you did did this flight, you got really tall a couple times, yeah, two two thirty-five FAI. Is is there quite a bit more on the table, do you think? Or is are you guys kind of maxing it out at that size? Yeah, how I how think... good was this day? Was it pretty good? <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty good day, but uh, I think it should be possible more, of course. <laughs> always, always. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, the performance of the glider getting better now. And yeah, I think there would be more in it because uh, I think at least you can fly nine hours now this time. And I was flying eight hours. So Another hour, <clears throat> another 40K, 45K or something. What what was your I didn't look at that. What was your average speed of the flight? Uh, it was like thirty k's point something. Ah, okay. So fast, but 
not totally screaming. The what is your what is your philosophy on? I just know that a lot of people would be questioning or wondering this. What's your philosophy on glider choice for making these big triangles in really tall terrain? You know, I remember John Sylvester used to always say that he liked to bring it back. You know, I think back then when I was flying with him, he was flying the addict, and just because the your your ground speeds are so high when you're flying really tall, you know, rather than flying a, an Enzo or a CCC glider, do you think it's important to back it down a little bit? Uh, for me, actually, I've learned out the scene because uh, I just saw this in the beginning, you know, they make good advertisement and <laughs> lots of people bought them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put put the best pilot in the in the world on the Xeno and then go win a World Cup. That was, that was pretty good marketing. <laughs> No, and uh, I, I know the first one was already good, and I thought like second one is also good. It's I like it very much also. What are you flying for a harness? I fly the Woody uh, Woody Valley GTO Light. And is that what you're bivying with too? Is the Zeno Two and the Woody Valley, or do you kick it down to lighter gear for bivy? No, I do it with the same gear actually. Before I was flying okay. with the Skywalk X Alps, um, four and. Now I got the Zeno too, but I will see how I do with uh, when I do all the bivac because still my skywalk glider is good and yeah, uh, of course the Zeno two is a little bit more difficult to take off. Now you have a little bit more heavy material, so the skywalk is a little bit easier to take off. Mm. So mm. it makes if it's the the places are very tricky to take off. I think you have a little bit easier point with it. Do you do any kind of internal compensation for when you're flying in higher terrain? I mean, one of the things that struck me as so amazing about beer is the the places you can stick your glider because there's so little wind. It's it's really amazing. And as opposed to we get we get that kind of height here where I'm from in, in Sun Valley, but we're always dealing with wind. And so we really have to give ourselves a lot of margin. But is are there are there things you're calibrating when you're going from the Alps to beer and just in terms of safety, risk, margin, any speed, any of those kind of things? Yeah, of course. I mean, if you fly higher gliders, they are much more faster. You are in uh, like if you go in a bad valley, you know, there is a lot of wind then you have, of course, a little bit more safety. I feel like for myself. Yeah. But uh I mean, it can be also like if you stay in the front ridge, it's not that windy. But if you go back in some other valleys, like when I was flying in the Chamba Valley, not now in this flight, but on the what I did last year, the 272, that was also quite windy. It's not always like there is no wind. It's like in the springtime, it's getting picked up more. The wind picks up mm. a little bit more. Yeah. And do, does does valley wind is valley wind more of an issue too? In, in in beer in the spring, yeah, valley wind getting much more stronger than in the autumn. Ah, okay, interesting. So, uh, and and is that just because the the mountains are sucking harder, or is that a is that a pressure gradient kind of thing? I think it's because of uh, like of course the thermals getting more stronger. Now sometimes you have like ten meters climbing, so all the air what comes. Through, because of the terminals goes up, all the air have to flow also, and that's why the valley winds are stronger. Have you flown in the Hansa Valley? Have you flown much in Pakistan as well? 
No, I never flew there, but I would like to. But this is always um, the time when I'm when I have to work at home. I have to prepare in the yeah exactly for tantamas in May. I have to prepare all my work, like make advertisement and yeah be around and prepare everything for the season. So that's why it's difficult, but. Of course, one time I will uh, take my time off on this day and uh, or on this month, and then I will go there. Yeah, the Aaron Duragati's flights out there last year were just outrageous. Really makes me want to go. <laughs> well, yeah, Tom and those guys there. It's just it's yeah, it's big terrain. It's beautiful. Yeah, everyone is telling me, Philip, you should go to Pakistan. You will kill it. Before we go to your history in 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 Acro, I just wanted to find you know, and also before we leave this big flight that you just did, you you mentioned to me three or four days before that you were going to do it that it looked really good, you know, the weather was lining up, and that you thought you had a chance, and then you, you went and pulled it off. Uh, tell tell the tell us about your kind of preparation both in forecasting and mental prep and gear prep what were what were the things that led up to making this flight possible i mean of course i always look at the weather forecast but the weather forecast here in india is not that good than in europe I was so say, there's not much <laughs> <laughs> but still I, I actually when i see it's a good weather every day stay on the takeoff and i try Mm, just try every day when it's when you have a good window yeah if you have a good window you go and try otherwise you fly just another you you don't go for this what you make a project out of it then you go for other distance no what are you using for forecasting tools uh meteor blue windy windy have actually four different kinds of and then you look all of them and then you make your own decision which one could work and yeah are you flying with any kind of? Are, are there any winds talkers in in that whole system? Are you flying with any kind of a, a wind app in the air? You know, wind alert or something. Windy would work too, I guess. Uh, that while you're in the air, is there anything you're checking in real time? No, not really. I just go always up a fly and uh, check what's gonna happen. And if I feel good, I just go for it and. More, the more important thing what to have is uh, what I really like to I have always my tent with me, my sleeping bag, isomat, all the things that I'm like, yeah, I can survive for a couple of days. So if yeah. you have to land somewhere, then there is no problem. No, either you hike up somewhere and then you look for a nice takeoff again and you keep going. Or you can survive there in the backside like this. Tell me more about just difference of what your approach between, you know, flying a big FAI in the Alps versus beer, you know, there, you know, for example, there's for a long time, there's been this really tricky thing with the inReach, you know, because the India doesn't allow satellite devices. And I mean, I know that I think everybody's still using them as just something you don't want to have in your bag and your carry on kind of thing. But the, is there any other kind of thing you you would re, you really take that's very different? Because you know in the Alps we've got access to care and food and water literally everywhere. We don't really have to think about that stuff very much. Yeah, actually, I'm not making big FAE or the big uh, flights in Europe. 
I do some, but not on the best days. I still have to work. I also have to get somehow money. But um, yeah, like as I say, my backup is actually my bivouac gear and that you mm. carry food for one week. I always have with me. This is the biggest backup, backup what I see. And also when I see people flying in the backside, even if it's just the next reach after after Hanuman, just behind the takeoff, I always tell them if I see them without flying the tent and stuff, they should put at least something you now that you can survive there because the access is very difficult. If even if you go more further to the glacier, then can be if you land there, you have to hike maybe one or two days, you know. Yeah. If just something happened with the landing, you twist your ankle, you will not hike the whole day. So you need something to survive there. Right. Yeah, you're not just a helicopter away from from salvage out there, especially on that back ridge, isn't it? I mean, it's a whole different. You got you go from front country to really deep, really quick. Yeah, that's. I think it's the most different uh, to, about Europe now. Of course, in Europe we will also find some lost places, but here they are definitely easy. Just you fl fly ten kilometers back, then you're already in the lost place. What was your What was your cloud base? on the big day and were there a lot of clouds um actually there was not so many clouds they come when i come back from manali then there was some clouds and i went up to five seven were you flying with o2 no i'm do you, uh, no, you get hypoxic at all or do you feel pretty good no, I feel pretty good. I hike a lot here in the mountains. I love to hike as well, so I acclimatize myself always and yeah, I fly on five seven without problem. I think even the highest what they did was last year was um six thousand five hundred fifty, even with two harness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh how cold was it? Must have been freezing. Uh, it was oh, fucking cold. <laughs> 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 it was very cold. Uh, like I, if I feel like my glider was not moving too much, uh, I released the brakes and then I just start to shake my hands all the time because I feel many times I didn't feel my fingers. So you also you have to take care. No, if you don't feel it, and then you put the blood inside when you turn your hands. Oh, the pain! And that it's not starting too much pain, you know. So you do oh. a few. You move your fingers for a few times and then you put it up again and you wait. And then, yeah, <laughs> yeah. everyone, I guess, has his own technique like that. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's brutal. The, the, are you flying with kind of over mitts? You know, are you, are you flying with kind of down over mitts over your gloves or uh, what's your cold management system? No, I got from Saleva the big uh, down gloves where they have the Tyrol wool in it. They are oh. pretty good. Okay. And they're mitts, mittens? No, I don't have mittens because uh, I like to... I, I like to... Take a wrap. Yeah, take a wrap on the line. So that's why... And that's good. If, and gloves are good enough, huh? Yeah, well, for you me just it's said enough. not quite. <laughs> You're shaking in gloves. <laughs> yeah, you know, they are hard Austrian guys. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, like you said, the the acclimatization helps, but God, I struggle with that. It can be so cold. I've, I've learned over the years too that the more 
the more I do it, you know, the more I really, really freeze my fingers, the, the, the less well they work every season. You know, I've had, I've had some seasons where I've, I've gotten them so bad in the spring that, you know, it'll be three or four months later before I get the feeling back all the way to the tips of my fingers. You know, the, I'll have a couple in the middle that are just kind of dead from the first knuckle down. Yeah, this hurts a lot. <laughs> but yeah, this is the hard moment where you have to go through, no? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's worth it. You'll, you'll warm up eventually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Otherwise, after you fly to the hot springs and <laughs> get yeah, your fingers you warm. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, Philip, give us your history a little bit. You started flying in 2009, you said? Yeah, I started flying in 2009. And like the teacher teach me, he told me in the second day um, that I have a talent for that. And yeah, then after I... Who was your instructor? Uh, Otto Kahn. Ah, okay. Even yeah. he actually just died um, one, one month ago. Yeah, what happened? Yeah, he got some cancers and stuff. And if mm -hmm. my, I mean, we know already that it will happen because he was suffering already for a couple of times. Oh, so okay. It was not like a big surprise. It's like this, but it was a nice guy. I liked him very much. And yeah, yeah at least the, the memory stays now. So he, he kind of recognized you had a, a, a talent? Yeah. He told me in the second day, Philip, you have a talent for, for that, for paragliding. Ah, okay. And then in the beginning, because of my friends was all flying um, a World Cup for acrobatic and then they show me and they teach me a lot how to do and what to do. And I remember in the beginning we was only flying straight outside to the landing and we just make collapse right, collapse left, uh, front collapse and everything like this. So we was practicing in the beginning a lot with the friends. And you said you did your first full stall at 50 flights? Yeah, after 50 flights, it's my first full story. Even uh, when uh, the other guys just um, cleaned the flying school and then they found the book and then they told me, hey, it was written 50, after 50 flights you did, or the 50 flight was your first full story. I even, <laughs> I even didn't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a basis. 2009, how old were you? Um, 2009. I was 20 years old. Okay. Okay. So 32. Yeah, maybe now. even oh, when yeah. I started in 2008, I guess it was with me. Okay. 30, 30, so you're 33, 34? Right? 33. 33. Okay. And so you got into it. The, so the kind of the, was the acro the beginning? Were you were you also XC flying, or was it just mostly acro early on? No, in the beginning was more the acro. Um, actually, was only focusing on acro because I liked it. I had uh, lots of fun when the glider was doing some strange thing above me. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, some people were scared, but I was always feeling comfortable. And yeah, I liked this very much. After like uh, one year, I was making already Helico and we was flying in Organia. We make a road trip with the friends there and yeah, like this, it keeps going. Were, so was your first big kind of road trip training place Organia? Is that why you, is that why you got pretty comfortable with training over the dirt or was, were you already pretty comfortable with that point? Um, actually, I was already comfortable to fly everything above the ground. Just like my first full stall I did above water, 
but all the other things um, I learned above ground. How many times have you thrown in reserve? I throw it now five times. Really? That's it for and all that acro training, just five times? Yeah, if if uh, one time was like I just uh, practice if I like the rescues or not, because okay. I we backed up we packed a res reserve and then we tried and one time I land hard with a normal around canopy and then after I bought the Rogallo because I feel like maybe this is more safe. So actually this was very funny <laughs> and Otto told me, yeah, but if you are not, if you fly normal outside, you will not throw the rescue, you know, and then I click out. So I click out one of the side <laughs> and then I throw the this road the reserve was very funny. <laughs> wait, wait, you, you unclipped one side before throwing the reserve? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How does what what happens? I've never seen that. How you go down fast, very fast. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of do a base jump. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just remember it was just like the glider was above me, it was like just like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I was already uh, prepared, nope. so I had already the re uh, rescue handle in the in the hand, so it's not like ah okay. Let, let's talk about that a little bit. What should people be flying with? Uh, should we all be using quick outs on our XC gear? What's your setup? I fly actually with normal carabiners on the setups. Okay. Because, yeah, I mean. It's the same with acroparagliding. When you throw the rescue, mainly I feel like you're faster if you put your glider in, then you're open and do this unclip the safety and then open the, the click out. I feel like you're much more faster. You're just in the moment that the rescue open, you just grab any line and you're just rubbling and get everything in what you can catch you now. And what about steerable versus unsteerable? Are you always using a Regalo uh, design? You're always using a steerable? Yeah, I was always using the steerable, or mostly, especially for acro, because you sink less, so mm. and you land very nicely, or I land a couple of times very nicely with this rescue. What do you think about Kevin's video in Organia? Ah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus, yeah, funny that video. Was scary. Holy moly. That was yeah. crazy. Yeah, it's uh it's it's very scary now if you fall into the glider or even in the lines. Have you ever been gift wrapped doing your infinity training and stuff? That ever happened to you? Um actually I had a similar situation than Kevin in uh Guatemala once. I was flying Twisted Infinity and then I was it was already started today, like I was not sure to go to fly and then people say, ah, let's go fly. And I was like, my mind was not for flying. So I just come with sandals and uh, <laughs> I was flying Twisted Infinity and I remember I untwist and then was like, should I exit or not? And then I went a little bit on the brake and then just the glider stopped under me and I fall in the lines and... Then I was not in the beginning. I was pulling the lines away to get, to catch my rescue handle, and yeah, um, it's just I throw the reserve and just open, and I stand on the ground. Yeah, Holy shit! So it, you it, same thing as Kevin, but without the video. Sounds like. 
Yeah, I mean there is a video even on Instagram, but it's from far away and the guy stopped to film because he thought like I gonna be dead, so he stopped to record. What was the? You have any kind of fear injury or anything from that? Was there any? Was it harder to fly after that, or did it spook you, or were you just pissed at yourself? No, not really, because I know which mistake I make. No, it was like, you're not sure, should I exit or not? And this was the mistake. If you know what mistake you make, I always feel like, okay, this was the problem. So I think people only get scared if they don't know what is the problem. No, if you don't know what is the problem, then you get scared and you don't trust your stuff anymore. We were talking about this in the last show that it seems like if you're kind of in a flow state, it doesn't seem to be very scary if you really, you know, because it, things happen so slowly when you're in flow state where you're, you understand, you know, you can visualize it as soon as it's it's happened and two days later or immediately or any time it's, you know, exactly what happened. It doesn't seem like people suffer from fear from that. It's It's when it's just chaos and you can't put it together. Yeah, and the life is anyway dangerous, no? <laughs> <laughs> yep, it is indeed. <laughs> yeah, you go on the road, <laughs> there can be many problems. Yeah, sure. Are you are you still training pretty serious acro these days, or is it more you more focused on XE? No, now I'm uh, more focused on XE. I still like to fly, but I'm not flying a lot. But maybe I thought like maybe I will go to uh, another place in the winter, maybe to fly acro. If in Mexico, I think it's good to fly there. So next year I will bring my gear to Mexico and fly there also a little bit more acro. Where would you do acro training in Mexico? I think in Valle should be okay. There is also just over strong... the piano there. Just get up high and over the over the LZ out in front. Yeah, I think so. I will try to do it that. It'd be fun to watch. You don't see yeah. many people doing acro there. Yeah, I know. There is not so many people flying acro, but I think it's also a good place. No, I mean, you have strong terminals, so it should be possible to terminal with the acro glider a little bit high up and to somehow like yo-yo flying. Mm. I know a lot of people listening are thinking, oh, wow, man, training over the dirt. But that's, you know, that's what we hear from all the best acro pilots. They're all training over the dirt. What what What's the difference what do people need to be thinking about if they're if they're going to train over the dirt what's the what's the rule that you live by yeah i mean if you practice a new maneuver it's i think it's much more better you just started with the altitude no and as low as you get you make the maneuvers what you already know so mm -hmm. and always keep a backup that you don't do anything under 100 meter then I think, or even if you're maybe in the beginning, you say 200 or something like this. But I think this is more or less how I started to do everything. So when I had a, was trying a new maneuver, I say, okay, make it in the beginning. When I have 1,000 meters, I start with the maneuver, what I don't know. And then after I practice with the other ones. If you were going to get into paragliding now, or maybe, you know, your, some of your tandem clients are super excited and they want to get into flying, what would be the progression you would recommend? Because we've seen lots of pilots like you, you know, uh, Pal Tackett's and Nanda Prashaska and, you know, guys that start off flying a lot of acro and then switch in a sense to XC 
I don't know that you see a lot the other way around, or at least I can't recall. I'm sure there are, but there, what would be the, I mean, it seems to me having the acro background must really help you to be a better XC pilot just from the confidence level alone. But if you were going to, you know, some young gun comes up to your school and decides, Hey, I want to become a pilot. What would you recommend? What would be the, what's the best way to become, to get to 200 hours and then a thousand hours, let's say. Yeah, I mean, um, it helps a lot no, to do in the beginning the acro stuff. I feel like even all the good um, XC pilots should even know how to handle a full stall. This would be even the basic for my way of thinking. Because if you have any problem, you can salute, you can make many solutions with the stalling if you're not scared from it. No? Your uh, your signature move, your kind of tail, your tip drag at the end of the flight, is is that the ground spiral? I, I, you see a lot of people mess these up. What's the best way to learn a really consistent ground spiral like you have? And what's the you know what's the progression there, the sequence there that you, you don't end up pounding it in because that's that's out of reach for a lot of pilots. You know, doing it consistently and well. Yeah, in the beginning, probably it's the best to make it even more height. No, you say like, um, I will exit maybe 10 meters above just to get used to, to get closer to the ground. Of course, um, the next thing is if there is snowy fields, would be even the best. No, hmm. even if you get closer one time or you get every day, you try more closer, more closer, more closer. And if something happened and you have a meter snow, that is not, not a big deal. So I, I started working at these really pretty hard a few years back, training for one of the X Alps. I can't remember which one, but I, I got pretty good at the tail, you know, the, the the dragging it on the ground and coming out nicely and all of that working. The thing that I never really figured out very well was the orientation from when I started it. You know, in, in do you know what I mean? In, in other words, where I would end up, <laughs> you know, you see the guys Kriegel and these guys doing it over water where they're dragging their tip and they're way out over the lake and they're able to, you know, very smoothly come back in and come in over the ground. But for me, it's the orientation. Do you have a trick for that in terms of, okay, I'm starting and I'm, and I'm facing North. Is this just micro adjustments all the way down or is it, do you have kind of a, okay, this is going to take a certain amount of time and this is how steep, it's just always something. In other words, where I come out of the, of the ground spiral is, a, is always pretty much a mystery. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> ooh, that either worked out really well or, oh, I'm going the wrong way again. I'm going downwind instead of upwind. You know what I, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah but uh, this I also have sometimes. I mean, mainly it works out, but sometimes, you know, sometimes it's the ground not completely flat. Sometimes you have more wind or you have more speed, you take more faster. Sometimes you just make one turn in the spiral and then you go for a tip touch so you have less energy. So there is uh, many things what works together. Yeah, okay, more practice. But I also cannot say 100% that uh, I will exit exactly at this point. Okay, well, that's good to know because sometimes you watch these videos, you're like, geez, they did it perfectly again. But it's it's good to know that even you can struggle with that kind of thing. <laughs> so did you compete in acro for a bit? No, I was never competing. I'm, um, I'm not too into to compete. I just do it because I like to do it. 
future goals. Tell me about, you know, you, you've, uh, you just nailed the one in beer. Do you have other places in the world where you want to chase after this next season? No, actually, I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, for sure, there will come something new, I feel like, but uh, I cannot tell 100%. I mean, like, uh, to me, sounds interesting. Also, Argentina and these places to look what's going to happen there. And yeah, I will see. Is is uh, is it the big flights or is it the bivy or something else that keeps you really motivated? You know, I think, I think we all at a certain stage in our flying, you know, it's, it's nice to have goals or it's nice to have something that really keeps you intrigued. You know, you've, you've, sounds like you've done a lot of everything. You've got the tandems, you've got the acro background, you've got the XC and, and, you know, these, these big FAIs is there, you know, when you, when you think to the next five years of flying, what, what has you the most excited? I think the most exciting to me is like the BVA flying. I like this very much. Even like uh, last year, I crossed, I crossed um, Nepal and India, like 1,300 kilometers, and I was there completely alone for um, yeah, 13 days, 12 days, 13 days. Mm-hmm. And this I really enjoy to be there. And even if I'm alone, I really enjoy to be alone there and make my own decisions and it seems like it works out very well. <laughs> yeah, I can say from 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 doing a couple big bivy trips with with other people because of the filming with Red Bull and stuff it's the even though the dynamic was was really good with my partners it's it can be really difficult with other people just because the especially in the Alaska one there's there's a lot more weight on the decision making, you know, if you if no one's ever wrong and of course you're never going to go, Oh man, that was a terrible decision. But it's, you know, when you decide, okay, we're going to hike 3000 meters up through this brush and it doesn't work out and you're carrying really heavy kit. It's, you know, you you just feel worse. Whereas when you're by yourself, you get to own all the decisions. And I, I often find that that's, you know, it's a totally different kind of experience, but it's, it's quite special. I don't know. It's, it, the decision making is easier, I guess. If you're a, a confident person, you just you, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, exactly. I also feel like when I go for a, like the big uh, angle or a, for something big, I'm like when I'm alone there, I'm I know what I know to do and I know my skills, so there is not a big surprise, no. But if you take some other people with you or somebody's flying with you, you don't know the skills of them. And as you said, you may be not on the same level. So yeah, that's why I'm really enjoy also to fly. I mean, it's also very nice to make some bivouac with my friends and stuff. But if I go for the big things, I always go alone. Any big lines you're looking at for bivvies? Yeah, as I said, you. Uh, I think Argentina or something would be nice there. Do something down the Andes. Yeah, this would be nice, but uh, yeah, I never know, you know. <laughs> yeah, Antoine's done some really neat things down there. I think it, it seems to me the the tricky part with both Chile and Argentina is just the winds, especially as you get south down in the, the Patagonia region. I think that can be quite quite difficult to forecast as well as just deal with. It seems like the wind can be your can be tricky. Yeah, this I heard also that in these places are uh, lots of wind and 
yeah, but anyway, you have to check it out and to see if it's possible or not in the end. Yeah, there's there's so many. Have you being spending all this time in beer? Have you ever looked at stuff uh, in Tibet or in China? Yeah, there would be even many nice lines, I guess, but uh, it's very difficult with the permissions, I guess, as well. I never tried, but uh, I can imagine China now <laughs> very strict, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think I think Hoffa is the guy to connect with there. Is it, I think he's living there now. It'd be interesting to see what what, what he thinks. Um, how about Mongo- Mongolia? Is that something you've had your eye on? No, I never thought like, but. Uh, as I said, never, never know, no. <laughs> but the only the, the thing is, I only have time in the winter time, so it means like from October, oh, yeah, right. of till May, and in the beginning of May, I have to be at home for preparing for my company for tandems. Do you instruct too, or is it just tandems? No, I just do tandems. I like to control by myself. <laughs> 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 if you're on the radio and you have to trust that the people were flying, I saw already many bad things, and I'm like, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, orient the listener to where you're from. You said the Tyrol, but the, for those who don't know Austria, where is it? Um, actually, it's uh, uh, yeah, in North Tyrol I live. It's close to Germany. Like if you know Munich, it's like 20 minutes, 25 minutes from Munich. Okay, so now I'm now even I, I thought I knew where it was. Now even I'm confused. I always thought the North Tyrol was you talking like Kimsey and the just the north side of the Alps. Yeah, exactly. It's north side of yeah. the Alps, so it's like okay. from Kimsey, it's uh, a little bit more down to the south. Down, okay, a little bit more down the south. Okay, so the kind of the Pinsgau region is your backyard. Yeah, amazing flying highway in the Pinsgau. There's uh, Big big stuff goes down there every year. It's a nice nice part of the world. Yeah, like Zillertal is very famous valley now. Even they did the three hundred. I think Valderdom did the first one over there. What's your biggest FAI? Um, yeah, I think it's uh, the two thirty, two thirty five. One in beer. Yeah, that's one in beer. And that was a record, right? Yeah, that was the record now. Yeah, I just had Debu on the show a little while ago. He must be chomping at the bit. He wants to get out there and beat it. I love it that there's 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 quite a gang of you uh, pushing that part of the world pretty hard. Is it is it tricky coming back from Manali, coming back down south? I guess if you're staying high, it's you're you're staying out of the valley winds and everything. Is that is that the hardest leg? Yeah, that's the thing. No, I start to go early there, so my first turn point was uh, Manali. And I I try to stay high that uh, the valley wind don't catch you. Even when I was going there, there was not much valley wind. But when I returned, because I saw some fire or some burning stuff down there, some smoke, and then I see oh, it's already on. So just always try to stay high and keep going. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen in in flying since you began in 2008? Yeah, this with Kevin is quite crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, that's an easy um, one, isn't it? That was nice. Yeah. <laughs> oh but yeah, God. also, 
uh, you you was anyway speaking about my rescue uh, the harness mission no that was also nice yeah yeah <laughs> this was about myself this was also very nice i like this story <laughs> what what yeah tell us the rest of it so you so you unclipped one side you threw your reserve then then how did it all shake out from there uh then i threw the reserve and then i unclipped the second one and yeah and then I landed there. Oh, then there it was normal. Yeah, then it was everything normal, so it was not a big surprise. But what I was talking about was the what you speak with Debo, no? Because I oh. heard the podcast. This with the, is that you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Holy shit! Oh, I didn't put that together. That you were the one that landed in the river. No, I landed not in the river. I was the guy who, who bring the stuff outside. Ah, okay. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, now I got it. That I remember. Holy cow, that was a crazy one. Holy moly. I like this very much, this story. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was just after that. Let's see. I was just down in Brazil at the World Cup, and somebody was more intimate with that story than we even got on the podcast. And they were saying that, he was, he was really, it was, you know, it was, the river was moving. It was, he was really in a bad spot that it could yeah, have yeah, gone it was, way worse. It was a very bad spot where he was and he got very lucky that he got stuck on the rock, just like 10 meters before it's getting back under the ice. And Whoa. the river, when I went down there in the morning, it's maybe was like one meter deep. But I went very early down there, and then even in, when I was there for half an hour, even if the water comes up like maybe 10, 20 centimeters more. Really? Yeah, because of all these things is melting, you know, and with the sun, and yeah. Oh, it's a crazy, it was a very crazy place to see that somebody was landing there. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, they they got him out with the with the job for there. <laughs> Amazing! I had an incident very, very, very early on. I, in fact, I think it was one of my I don't know the second or third XC I ever did, and the first one was maybe six kilometers. I don't even know if you get to count that, but it was down in the Dominican Republic, and I got blown. I was trying to top land to pee because I had to pee so bad, and I didn't really know how to top land, and I didn't realize how windy it was, and I got blown over the back into this kind of land of the lost box canyon, and I ended up landing in a river where surrounded by waterfalls. There were waterfalls upriver for me and waterfalls downriver for me, and the canyon was so narrow that about 200 feet before I landed, I had to pull big ears just to fit. It was this little tiny slot canyon. And, <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is it. I'm dead for sure. And I, I landed in the river and it was very slow moving and it was only six inches deep. You know, if it had been 10 feet deep, there would be no chance. And so, and then the, the exit was, was incredible. I had to throw my gear off all these waterfalls and down climb. It was an amazing adventure. It was, it was, you know, and of course I'm on cloud nine cause I was alive, but I brought in my friend the next day to take photos just so she could see it. Yeah. And, it, you know, she still claimed there's no way you can't, <laughs> this is an impossible place to have landed. No, I did. I promise. Nah, you didn't. <laughs> I, I don't believe it. <laughs> it sounded, it sounded kind of like that with him. It was just an impossible place to find yourself, but he. Yeah. <laughs> full on. But uh, yeah, luckily, luckily everything goes good in the end. No. And you got all the gear. 
Yeah, actually, the glider was uh, maybe he put 10 hours on the glider, but it was completely fucked because it was four days in the water because the weather was not good for four days. And after oh. the four days, I flew inside there, land on 4,000, and then I hiked down. I prepared, I'm in the beginning, I make my camp. Then I prepared everything, even I had 100 meter rope with me, and I was even checking again all the knots, what I should know and which one I have to make. And yeah, then I found a tree and in the, the next day in the morning I went there and then uh, I saw a tree and then I went down with the rope. And when I was down there, I was always on the rope. I was just in case if something happened, I'm, I'm safe. God, it was that steep. Yeah, it was, it was... quite steep. Wow. Amazing! That's crazy. Uh, any other any other good stories like that from your adventures? Um, yeah, actually, when I did the two thirty five, when I flew to Manali, you go to the lower. We say we call it. Uh, it's actually Tamsapas. And when I crossed there, I was also like, "Fucking too low! I cannot manage to jump over this ridge." I'm like, "Ah, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no," and then you go. <laughs> And I just have to break my glider to break a little bit that I just can manage to go over. I was already like, should I run there? I'm like, hey, you're stupid. You will not run on 4,000 meters in the snow. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just managed to come or jump over. I'm like, yes. And I was screaming and I was super happy. I'm like, and now I go, I go for it. I go for it. <laughs> I'm on my way. <laughs> that was, was that coming back or going out? Uh, this was uh, in the beginning, I think, even the first one and a half hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. Then I was like, ah, now I'm on the way to Manali. It's because this is one of the tricky points as well to go there, especially now this year, there is more snow. So even if you fly somewhere and more in the backside, there is the valley higher. It's full of snow, so it's not working that well. Is this is this something you really have to pay attention to before you go for spring flying? Is the is the snowpack? I mean, do you time your trip depending on the snowpack, or do you just go and 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 hopefully it works out? I mean, you anyway cannot change. No, like this year they say everyone said it's less snow, and then I arrived and it was uh, one and a half week full snowing. So it's difficult yeah. to say hundred percent there is less snow. But I thought this year would be even better. And if I was thinking to do this line, what I did last year, the 272, but just a little bit more. But uh, for the moment, there is still too much snow. I had a question for you. We're having, not a debate, but we're trying to figure out the kind of rules that, you know, the British have, have posted these about what constitutes closing an FAI triangle. So there's you know, just like in here, if you just do a downwind flight, it's always going to be longer on X contest because they give you three points. And so you get more point, you know, and, and, but the way we've always measured it in, in the States is it's just purely distance from launch. So if you don't, if you don't fly a directly straight line and you get, you know, you, you do a bit of a curve, that curve doesn't count. It's just from launch to where you land. So the same thing with FAIs, we're trying to determine, you know, because F, or X contest gives you 
you know, the, the 20% bonus for if it's within, or sorry, the, the 20% bonus, they give you 1.4 for a standard FAI. They give you 1.6 if you're within 5% of closing, but we're trying to determine, we're trying to come up with a, I think the Brits have it that you, you're, you have to close it within 400 meters. So you have, you have to be within 400 meters of, of launch or of somewhere on the track that, you know, that that's, that's the close. And that should be what we judge in a sense an FAI triangle by rather than what X contest gives you. Is this something you guys are talking about or is it something that is, is also a debate in, in Europe? I mean, is it the same in Italy as it is in France? Are there different ways to, to, to score an FAI? No, actually I've never thought that. <laughs> um yeah, actually, I'm not. Uh, since last year, actually, I'm uh, in to fly this big three angles or flat ones. So I'm not so focused so much on the points. I'm just looking uh, what, how much they flew, and I just make it a little bit bigger, or I'm a, just fly my own line, like in Mexico. Um, I just flew a new little bit more in the south where nobody was flying and i thought like why is nobody going there I mean, but it's also like most of the people they're just focusing on the same what already happened and they are not yeah i like to be more inspired by myself i look at the map i see okay i can go there maybe why don't go there and then i figure out the place but for this fa things yeah, I know you. If you close it completely, you know at the big three angle you get the one point six, and if you don't close it, you get one point four. Then for the flat one, you get also one point four. I never expect if you make a turn that you will get more because the thing is to try to fly the straightest line as possible. No. Yeah, I, 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 it's kind of an interesting one just because of the the closing. You know, if you're if you're flying a really big FAI the closing cylinder that X contest gives you is really big. Cause it's, I think it's, I think I'm pretty sure it's 5%. I might be wrong on that. And there's a, there's, it's 20% for 1.4, I think, and 5% for the, for the close. And it's, yeah, I think also it's you know, 5%. That, yeah. And that becomes really big on, you know, in a big triangle like you did that close could be, you know, considerably long distance from where you, you took off. And so it's something we, that that's, uh, you know, it, it, when you start keeping track of these things, I think it's important to just have a baseline. Uh, and so it's interesting. It's I don't think we've come up with an answer here. It's just I've been trying to ask people just to see what they're what they think. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> nah, it doesn't really matter. It's just it's it's kind of an interesting. It's, it's yeah, an interesting it's anyway also also the big uh, number. And then it's just numbers. No, I mean. I like to fly big things, but in the end, sometimes you make a very small flight and even the small flight, you feel much more better than you make a record or something like of this. Of course. Yeah. The, the aesthetic can be way more, way more powerful or the, the conditions can be, or the aesthetic or the feeling of the day can be a lot better than the numbers. Yeah. Like I remember last year when a friend, or one guy flew a 200 here and I, I said like 
Um, yeah, I was flying 20 kilometers with some friends and making bivouac, and, and they say, oh, you saw somebody flew this and that. I'm like, I don't care, man. I just enjoy life, you know. <laughs> just go for a bivouac <laughs> with some friends and, uh, yeah, just come back from the hot springs and sleep in Hobbiton. It was super nice. And I was like, I don't care anyway. <laughs> okay, well, an impossible question that maybe, maybe you've just – answered but let's let's end on this but when you uh close your eyes and dream at night what's the what's the most memorable flight what's the one that you would we can never repeat a flight it's always going to be different you, you know something's going to be different about it but what's the one flight that really uh keeps you coming back to the game yeah i think this is this what i did last year the 272 because this you fly really on the high mountains on the back ridge and i went like almost to kashmir to the border and this was a very nice one this was yeah even everything was so beautiful and you see on the other valley where the valley goes to kelong and um udaipur and all these places this was yeah, just amazing to fly on these high walls and super steep and narrow valleys. And yeah, I crossed behind Mani Mahesh and then I come on the south side. I come back on, on the south side of Mani Mahesh. This is yeah, very nice route. I like this very much. But of course, uh, if you have a problem there, you have a big problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This was—I think this was the one that Debu talked about in the podcast, correct? You, just because you were—you were pretty deep. You were—you were back on the back ridge the whole way, right? Yeah, it was pretty deep. But this uh, was very nice one. I really enjoyed it a lot. Mm. And even I was not planning, even the more funny thing is I was not planning for it. I was like, just I have my own project to say, okay, I finished to cross um, Nepal and India. And actually a day before, I I feel not so good. So I say, I will land in beer and rest, sleep by a friend and rest there a little bit because I had a little bit headache. And then the next day I say, okay, I will go to Kashmir to the border. And then maybe I will sleep somewhere in Chamba Valley. And then a friend of mine, he comes, he was uh, just here for five days. And I was like, I would like to see him. So I pushed a little bit more. And then in the end, when I jump out of Chalzupas, um, I was looking on my phone and I'm like, oh, I have 241 kilometers. I'm like, what is the record? 260? I don't remember. I'm like, okay, I put some more. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, the last, the last, uh, maybe two hours, I decide. Okay, now I make the record. <laughs> awesome! Ah, oh, it just happened. That's that's amazing. Uh, man, that that flight. I was just imagining. It. It's nice that I've been there, you know, so I can kind of picture it a little bit. You know, I was I was a very new pilot when I was there, so you know, I think I think it was the first hundred k I ever did there was just Dharmasala and back. But I did a really my first bivy ever in my life was with with Sylvester there. We we flew up, oh, nice. we launched beer and went over the back and top landed above Manali and spent the night by the fire. Got encased in ice. It was freezing. Yeah. And then the next day next day flew back and when we flew back over beer, everybody was just getting ready to launch. You know, because we were able to launch it early, I don't know, 9.30, yeah, 10 early. o'clock and boosted up and came back over and everybody was just kind of getting ready, you know? So it was, 
it was the thing that planted the seed for me of just how epic Bivy. I didn't, I had never done it. I didn't even have a sleeping bag. I just slept in all my stuff that I'd flown in. Yeah, I did this also in the beginning, but then I freeze my ass off one time and then oh. I say, okay, now I'm going to pay my good stuff. <laughs> Fucking John, he, he built this fire for us and he had his tea, you know, because he's British and he had his tea and all that stuff. And, uh, and he was just cozy in his nice warm bag. And I, I mean, I had my down coat, I had my stuff to fly and I thought I'd be fine, but I just, my all night, all I did was just keep the fire going and just cuddled i just circled my whole body around the fire we just encased in ice it was so cold oh god it was freezing <laughs> got back uh, to beer at two o'clock had some lunch and went to bed <laughs> yeah this is now if you're not well prepared i see also sometimes the people with the very thin mat and even yeah. just a couple of days ago i did some bivouac flying in the hot springs and then the other guy had only the mat for the upper party, not for the feet. So I'm like, why oh. like this? <laughs> why I don't have a proper <laughs> mat? You will know it. This is the thing what is very important for me. You know, if you sleep good, you fly good also in the next day. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, people have made so many comments about all the gear that Dave and I had on the Alaska thing. You know, that was for me, uh, Dave left before we got done, but it was 37 days for me. And I had a really, really heavy pack, but that's because, you know, you have a lot of down days. I, I like yeah. to, I like to enjoy life. I like food. I like podcasts. I like books. I, you know, I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't shy. I don't, I don't mind carrying shit. I just, I load up. I carry a lot of stuff so I'm comfortable and I can sleep well and enjoy my trip. I don't, yeah, I don't take is, a very uh, alpine approach. <laughs> this is also what I like very much. If I remember one time when I did the uh, like border cross, it's like uh, you have 33 hours and who yeah. goes on the furthest point and come back, who wins? And I remember when I was hiking the take up, I prepared everything. I put music outside and then people was there. And then they say, Are you you bring speakers with you? I'm like, <laughs> Yes, I'm always flying with speakers. But your supporter bring? I'm like, I don't have any supporter. <laughs> of course I carry it by myself. <laughs> and it was like super like disappointing. No, like, but you're carrying these big speakers with you. <laughs> I think that can be, we talked about this a little bit, but I think that can be one of the more frustrating things about doing, you know, expeditions or baby trips or anything with other people is the, the, for me, I, I'm never in a hurry to do them. I, I don't want to get to the end. I, I'm not, I'm not in any desire to reach goal because I, I've spent so much time just being able to do it whether that's work or preparation or having the time to do it or you getting away from the family. So the last thing I want to do is race through and get done. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm having fun. I'm having fun doing it. So if the weather's shit, I don't want to walk all day. I, I do that in the X Alps. I, I want to sit there and throw rocks at my shoes and be perfectly content because I'm in this beautiful place that I've worked so hard to get to. I don't want to race through it and get to the end, but inevitably when you're with with other people if they have if if they do then it's a source of conflict you know it's just uh yeah anyway it, it, that's always been a, a big difference with when i'm with other people doing things is they want to get it done and yeah. i don't want to get it done I, I, we're out there in the environment that we 
love. I don't want to finish. <laughs> yeah, and even if there is a project, no, if you don't finish, there is also not a big problem. No, I mean, then you That's come it. next time and try again, or um, or I say you do a new one, or uh, like the same they did, no. Um, Tondolador and Horacio, they did also, like, they didn't make it to the goal what they had to, no. Yeah. But they make a really That's... nice story out of it, and it looks very good, no. Yeah, it's amazing. That was, that's some phenomenal flying. Aaron's too was just oh, mind blowing. It was very yeah. Cool. It was a, uh, a big flight. I, I think often these these big flights go down that way. You know, it's not necessarily. I, usually, when I have a big flight planned, it doesn't go that way, and it's. I, I have a harder time than being flexible and flying the conditions rather than the plan that I've set for myself. I think it's often if, you know, you're going to have a really big day if you just fly the sky. Yeah. That is many times like this now, if you plan too much and if you too much focus on it, then it will be not happening. No, I, I always feel like if you take it more easy and see, oh, yeah, maybe today I will see and then it's going to happen, no? It was like semi-Mexico arrived there. <laughs> it was very funny. I just remember when I drove up with Potro, and then he was asking, which player are you flying? I'm like, Sino 2. But uh, then he was asking me, and do you like it? I'm like, I don't know. It's my first time I used this plan. <laughs> and he like, you know, there is strong condition here. <laughs> I said, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, then I missed like four four kilometers. Uh, I missed the record in my first day in Mexico. <laughs> this was very nice too. <laughs> yeah, the you know I think I think in a sense that the because you were you hadn't been there a ton. I'm sure that helped. You know, it's all it's never the it's never the local hero that gets the records. Because you pushed farther south, we're always told never to go there because of the cartels. And you know, there's there's it gets pretty dicey on the south side of Mordor, apparently, if you land. And so if you don't know that and then you don't land, you're fine. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I don't gonna go let that at yeah, one exactly. No. <laughs> that's it. Well that's it. You're not gonna land. That's that's the thing about yeah. you're not there's thermals everywhere. You're not gonna land. <laughs> and I mean I'm even thinking even if there is all the cartels, I mean, uh in the worst case what they do you I mean I think they will not kill you, no. I mean and if it's like this, you're just in a bad timing in a bad place, but this can be happen everywhere, no. Even on the road, you go somewhere, there is maybe some drunk people or something and or somebody's driving crazy and then Chuck, then you're not anymore there. So if you're, I'm not thinking too much on bad things. I believe if I'm thinking on good things, good things will be happening. If I'm thinking too much, why Mexico, they will steal me. Of course, then they will steal you, know, you attract them a little bit. Sure. This is my mind. It's a good mindset. I like it. And a perfect place to end. Philip, thanks very much. I appreciate your time and making this happen on the other side of the world. And how much longer are you there for? Are you going to get some more chances to go with this or your trip's wrapping up? Yeah, I'm going back home in uh, 4th of May. Oh, you got some time. You got plenty of time. Yeah, yeah. A little bit. I have more. <laughs> Almost nice. <four> months. <laughs> Oh, excellent. Well, I'll, I'll keep an eye on you. Good luck and I hope you get some more uh, terrific flights. Be safe yeah. over there and have fun. Yeah, thank you very much, Kevin. And nice to hear from you. And yeah, 
Maybe we see us one time more. <laughs> Absolutely. See you cloud base, bud. That was a pleasure. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Bye. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher, or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing, a lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes costs. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription. And it makes all of this possible. Uh, I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people. And these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, little video casts that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear we don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account, of course, that'll be lifetime. And hopefully in a, you're being in a position someday to be able to support us. But you'll find all that on the website. Uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought Cloud-Based Mayhem merchandise, t-shirts or hats or anything, you should be all set up. You should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show. Thank you.